0: Thank you very much for coming tonight. As you likely know, the gospel meetings are coming to their close tomorrow evening, Friday evening, and at 7.30, and then Sunday at noon. Those will be the final meetings of this series, although the gospel is preached here each Lord's Day, and you are warmly invited to come to hear the word of God. There will also be a children's meeting Sunday evening at 5.30, All of those meetings are in the will of God. Now, tonight we're going to be considering Dwight Moody, uh, There's nobody on the chart that has um, been given more icons by the um, artist. there's four of them that have to do with him. I think it's significant that we're considering this global evangelist on the day that Billy Graham went to be with Christ and uh, Moody um, Was a man who preached to hundreds of thousands of people in his lifetime And yet he was just from right here in New England a Massachusetts boy. We're going to read in first John, please for our first readings, 1st John chapter 2, verse 21, 1st John chapter 2 and verse 21. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, because you know the truth and that no lie is of the truth. Notice chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Chapter 5, please, verse 12, verse 11 for the context. This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Verse 19. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness, or lieth in the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. One more reading, please, in the Bible's last chapter. Revelation chapter 22. Verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is athirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. I would recommend to you, if you have an interest in this type of thing, that you, um, if you have never before, that you read a biography of this intriguing man, Dwight Moody. I sometimes thought you could uh, encapsulate his whole life under these terms, that there were two Sunday school teachers, two preachers named Henry, two acquaintances, his wife Emma and Ira Sankey. And two emergencies, the Great Chicago Fire and the near shipwreck uh, aboard the ship Spree. And that's his whole life. And it is intriguing to see the impact those things had on him. For years, preachers visiting the East Boston Assembly would have the pleasure of a rapid tour of Boston given by the late Mr. Fred Hill. The frenetic pace had to include a visit to the bronze plaque on the wall at Court Street, marking the spot where D.L. Moody was saved. It was April 25th, 1855, when his Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, visited Moody at the shoe store and led him to faith in Christ. Remarkably, 17 years later, Moody led Kimball's son to the Savior. Moody was originally from the western part of Massachusetts, possibly because of the size of her brood. Betsy Moody, his mother, never encouraged Dwight to acquire a good education. Consequently... His total schooling was the equivalent of a fifth grade education today. He never went to college or seminary, nor was he ever ordained as a clergyman. He spelled phonetically. He spelled the way things sounded. So, for instance, um, uh, he would spell the word climb, C-L-I-M-B. The B was silent, so whenever he was writing, he would spell it C-L-I-M-E. His notes abound in spelling errors and grammatical ones. In an era when most people did not attend high school, this was not remarkable except that the lack of learning and polish was glaring in Moody's case. During his early days in Chicago, his grammar was impossible. His pronunciation smacked of the Massachusetts hill country of his boyhood, his vocabulary was poor, and his spelling can be described only as imaginative. His physical appearance struck the people of Chicago as uncouth. He moved awkwardly, spoke awkwardly, and stumbled when he read. In short, Moody was not only ill-educated, he also struck people as being a country bumpkin, a farmer, who had come to the big city. An early Chicago acquaintance recalled, no one ever thought he would amount to much on account of the fact that he was so poorly educated. Eventually, Moody's more polished and better educated wife, Emma Ravel, gently went to work on him. God bless our wives. Reportedly, they spent an hour every day studying to make up for Moody's lack of education. As a result, the evangelist became more presentable, although his grammar, spelling, and pronunciation always remained rough and uncertain. He had a very clever thing he would do, particularly in his early years, if he was reading a verse in the Bible and he was gonna come across a word that he didn't understand, this is how he would handle it, a word he couldn't pronounce. Uh, For instance, let's say he couldn't pronounce the word uh, whosoever. Now he could, but let's say, for example, whosoever. Then this is how he would handle it. For God so he'd be reading. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That, you know, dear friends, this is a marvelous verse. A marvelous verse. Listen to what it's saying. Believeth in Him should not perish. So he just simply skip over the word that uh, he was afraid would make him stumble. On the other hand, his humble beginnings meant that as an adult he never lost touch with common folk. He disliked pretense or deference toward those of higher social position. By 1859, there were 1,000 pupils in his Sunday school class, and the creative ministry of their leader had won for him the title Crazy Moody. At age 23, he decided to abandon secular work and go into the Lord's work full-time. Now, an interesting thing happened uh, on November the 25th, 1860. This large Sunday school work was very, very well-known, and he had a visitor come to witness it for himself. That visitor was President-elect Abraham Abraham lincoln who commended him for his work among the young now there was an incident that prompted the decision to serve the lord full-time a dying sunday school teacher so i told you about the sunday school teacher who led him to christ this is the second sunday school teacher whose impact was tremendous a dying sunday school teacher had to return east due to his health and was greatly concerned about the salvation of the girls in his class moody rented a carriage for him And he took the man to visit each of the girls at their homes. At each home, the dying Sunday school teacher with tears in his eyes pleaded with each of the girls to trust Christ as Savior. At the close of 10 days of visiting, Moody and the teacher saw the last one profess to be saved. The entire class now said it was born again. They met at the railroad station to see the dying teacher off the next day, singing hymns about the heaven that the teacher was not far from entering. Moody would never be the same. He called the experience, quote, the most memorable I have ever known because it increased his personal concern for lost souls, a concern he never lost. Later in life, he said, I go where I can do the most good. This is what I am after. It is souls I want. It is souls that I want. There were two British preachers named Henry who had a great impact on his life. Henry Morehouse, the well-known British Bible teacher known as the boy preacher and assembly gospel preacher, told Moody, if you will stop preaching your own words, And preach God's word. He will make you a power for good. Moody learned much from Morehouse's hearty gospel preaching, especially his emphasis on God's love for a lost world. Henry Varley, who had befriended Moody in Dublin, had said to him, The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. Moody's response had been, By God's help, I I aim to be that man. Years later, he told Varley, Those were the words sent to my soul through you from the living God. As I crossed the wide Atlantic, the boards of the deck of the vessel were engraved with them. And when I reached Chicago, the very paving stones seemed marked with the words moody. The world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. Now, I haven't looked this up. I meant to today and um, forgot to do it. But uh, as you know, uh, his practical Christianity led him to um, start a boarding school for poor children, the Northfield Seminary for young ladies in 1879, and then the boys' version of it, the Mount Hermon School for boys in 1881. What I failed to check on today, which uh, I should have done, is that the C.S. Lewis Foundation um, was planning by 2012 to take over that property and open um, a class. They're the ones, by the way, who opened the kilns, Mr. Lewis's home, and they wanted to hold Um, classes that they would call the C.S. Lewis College on the Northfield campus, and so I apologize. I did not check whether uh, whether they were successful in what their plans were. Three great Bible truths were central to all of Moody's preaching. That human beings are ruined by the fall. He preached again and again, there are no naturally good men. There are no naturally good people. We are unsound from the crown of our head to the sole of our feet. He preached redemption by the blood of Christ. He said, there is nothing, my friends, that brings out the love of God like the cross of Christ. The first man that went to heaven went by way of the blood, and the last man that passes through those pearly gates must go the same way. And regeneration by the Spirit of God. He had a profound awareness that regeneration was the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why he did not end his messages with high-pressure invitations, because he realized God had to do the work. So when he was done preaching, he would say that there would be people uh, inside rooms ready to answer questions if you're interested, but there was no uh, altar calls or hit the sawdust trail or people coming up to have him put their hands on him. He was the first um, agent sent out by the U.S. Christian Commission that we considered when we were looking at the Civil War in the last couple of nights, and at the Battle of Mumphreysboro in January 1863, with bullets whizzing around him, he moved among the wounded and the dying, asking just one, one question, are you a Christian, are you a Christian? And answering how to be saved for any who as yet did not know Christ. Moody spoke at a rate of 230 words a minute. That's like saying, I... I, I I think I timed this right. That's like saying John 3:16 in 6.5 seconds. Recall that according to a contemporary source, I don't know if you've heard this famous quote: uh, that George Whitfield, this uh, gentleman here, George Whitfield, could make an audience weep or tremble merely by varying the pronunciation of the word Mesopotamia. That, of course, was hyperbole, but that was the idea. He could make an audience cry, weep, or laugh depending on how he pronounced. Mesopotamia. Now, Charles Spurgeon knew that famous quote, and this is what he said about Dwight Moody. He said, Moody is the only man I ever heard who can say Mesopotamia in one syllable. (laughs) One syllable. Let me just close by telling you, uh, Moody, by the way, was a premillennialist, having derived this view, uh, people feel, from the so-called Plymouth Brethren. That would be us, as we're called. In fact, he was the first premillennial evangelist. He knew that the Lord was coming and that's, that's what he preached. And I, I remember one famous quote of his where he said, I never get up. I never get up to speak to an audience without reminding myself that the Lord could come before I am done. Ira Sankey, let me just close by, with a few comments about this interesting man. Ira Sankey of Newcastle, Pennsylvania was converted at the age of 16. He became superintendent of the uh, Sunday school. Moody heard him sing at a YMCA convention And in his characteristic straightforward way, he said to Sankey, you're going to have to quit your job. I've been looking for you for the past eight years. Sankey hesitated to give up the security of a well-paying government job. So the next day, Moody asked to meet him on a certain street corner. When Sankey got there, he found Moody setting up a barrel on the sidewalk. Moody told him, this is for you. Get up and sing. (laughs) So Sankey got up on the barrel as a a crowd of factory workers were being dismissed, and he began to sing. And he noticed as he was singing that people actually stopped to listen and that that enabled Moody then to preach to them. Convinced that that one example was sufficient to prove it to him, he seriously considered joining Moody in Chicago and he did. And their names became inseparably linked. Although Sankey was not college educated and his voice was untrained, his sensitivity to the use of music and spiritual capacities became his trademark. I love this quote. It was said about Iris Sankey. He sings with the conviction that souls are receiving Christ between one note and the next. Sankey was blind the last five years of his life, and he died in 1908. As he lay dying, it is reported that he drifted into a final coma as he softly sang the words written by somebody else who was blind. Someday the silver cord will break, and I no more as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I shall wake within the palace of the king, and I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. Now, I spent a lot of time telling you about Moody's lack of polish, lack of culture, and lack of education for this very purpose. Moody only had a level five or six grade education. But sometimes people who lack a formal education are smart in other ways. Moody knew some things that a lot of smart people as far as college degrees are concerned did not know. So I would like to tell you what he knew and what people here tonight know because they believe what God says. Moody knew where the world was headed As I mentioned to you, Moody understood that the Lord Jesus was coming again. And therefore, Moody understood that the world was on a downward course. The world that you are in is on a downward course. It is headed for disaster. I can explain something of the world if I tell you that as far as its past is concerned, in in its heart of hearts, the world has hated Christ. We, we, We need to be very careful about this. Lest we fall asleep imagining that we live in a Christian country and, and most of the world really is, 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 a, is, is good and people are really generally nice. Moody understood that the world hated the Lord Jesus. He knew that from the Savior. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, If the world hate you, know that it hated me first of all. And that is not only chronologically. The Lord Jesus is not only saying it hated me before it hated you. He is saying the world hates me first. First of all, first of all, it was their link with the Lord Jesus that made the world persecute them. The Bible says that they hated Christ without a cause. Prophetically, he could say, those who hate me are more than the hairs of my head. In his parable, he captured the attitude of the human heart when he said that their words were, we will not have this man to reign over us. And then they completely displayed what was in your heart and mine when they stood outside of Pilate's balcony and they said, not this, give us Barabbas. Pilate had thought, he had tricked them. Pilate thought by by reaching down into the the dregs of the Roman penal system and dragging up this, this dark and sinister figure that he would compel them to choose Christ instead. And so Pilate was stunned when he puts the two of them out there on the balcony and makes them choose, thinking that certainly they will pick Christ. They say, not him. Give us Barabbas. You realize, of course, it would not have mattered who Pilate put on that balcony beside Christ. They wanted to get rid of him. The world loves the babe in the manger. He doesn't do any harm. See? Sheep and cattle are lowing. The wise men are bowing. It's harmless. But the man who told people you must be born again and the man who could read hearts and knew the sins of people and the man who said, let him that is without sin among you cast the first stone. That's the man they said, away with this. Away with this. One man who worked in a certain section of our world said that every time he mentioned the name of Christ, the audience spit. If it was a small group of people around him, sometimes they spit on him. Every time he mentioned the name Jesus or Christ, they spit at him. He had children that he was teaching helping them learn languages. They would read, he would would get them to learn by reading the Bible. They would read up until they came to the name Jesus or or the title Christ, and then they skipped it. In fact, one day when one of the students actually mentioned the name Jesus, all the other students looked at him like he had committed some terrible sacrilege. And he told them, I've mentioned his name because I have trusted him. I have trusted him as my savior. But none of the others would ever mention the name. Now you and I are not like that. But the trouble is you and I think that somehow we're better, that we really don't have a lot of sin in our hearts, that we're really not as bad as a lot of other people. But please understand me, deep in your heart, just as there was in mine, there is a heart that fights against God. As to its past, the world hates Christ. As to its present, I read to you, Moody knew this, that the whole world was lying in the arms of the wicked one, that the the whole world lulled to sleep by the devil. And that if you are not saved tonight, the reason that you are not saved, even though you have heard the gospel, is because the devil is stealing the word of God from your heart, he's blinding you. He doesn't want you to see truth. In May of 2009, in a Bronx co-op down in New York City, 67 year old man named Sheldon Scott came out of his room, stepped into the elevator, disappeared. His family couldn't reach him. They searched his room. He wasn't there. They searched the complex. He wasn't there. Then somebody looked down the elevator shaft. Down at the bottom of that shaft, lying dead was Sheldon Scott. Do you know why? It was a very old-fashioned elevator system. Kind of that, that grill kind of a door that you it's supposed to be locked until a car comes and then when a car comes it releases and you can open it and Sheldon Scott opened it and stepped out into an empty shaft and plummeted to his death do you know why because Sheldon Scott was blind Sheldon Scott would never have taken that step if he could see but he was blind You would never walk out of this building tonight not sure about salvation if you could see. You would never go to bed tonight. You would never go to sleep tonight on the way to hell if you could see. But the devil's blinding you. Moody knew that when he was preaching. And as to its future, the world is moving inevitably toward a clash of titanic proportions at a place called Armageddon. And God is gonna judge this world. It's headed for disaster. It's on a downward course. Moody knew where the world was headed. Number two, Moody knew what was wrong with man, with you and me. Wish I could just pause a moment and tell you that there are millions of people who do not know that. Millions of people who do not understand that. And they, they think the way to fix what's wrong with man is Throw some more government money. Fix the broken windows. Make the neighborhood look a little more. But Plant some flowers. They need to be educated. If you educate them more, everything will be okay. They have no idea what is wrong with the human heart. Moody knew because he knew it from God's word. And he knew that man is innately sinful. That we are basically Sinful. We are prodded toward what is good by our upbringing, by education, by conscience, by reverence, by a longing to be better. But, basically, innately, we are sinful. You know, when I, when I was when I was a little boy, I used to walk to, to, to elementary school. So we lived at Fifteenth and Wharton, and the school was Andrew Jackson School, which was something like about. Uh, 10th Street. So I I had about a from 15th to 10th and then two blocks and I had about a seven block walk. And one of the places I passed was a large city square. Big fence around it. Part of it was a baseball field. Part of it was a football field. Large building on it. And then there was a bocce court for bocce ball. There were old Italian men playing bocce ball. Their pants pulled all the way up to about here with uh, what they call Wife beater" T-shirts on. That's a terrible name for them. But there they played bocce ball. I used to stop sometimes and just watch them. So if you could imagine bowling outside without pins, just with balls, bocce ball with one trick. The balls are weighted. They have a natural curve built into them. See, if I, if I had a ball here and I did this, it wouldn't go in a straight line. It would veer one way or the other. So the trick in the game was to understand how the ball is going to go and adjust where you let go of it so that you get it to go where you want it to go. In other words, the ball had a bias one way or the other, and in order to cope with it, you had to adjust to the bias. Do you know that's what parents do? Parents understand that there's a bias in the hearts of their children. That there's a bias toward selfishness, disobedience, independence. And they realize that a parent who imagines that his child is a perfect child is in for a very rude awakening. And when a child becomes an adult, that does not change. Sin that was seen in small things in children... Seen in larger things in adults. And Moody understood man was basically sinful. He understood that man was inherently powerless, that we are without strength, that we are unable to please God, that we are incapable of redeeming ourselves. 183 times in one period of his gospel preaching, 183 times. In various places throughout the world, Moody preached on five words from the Gospel of John. Ye must be born again. Ye must be born again. He understood that no matter how nice, how kind, how pleasant, how educated, how religious, how intelligent a human being may be, that person had to be born again in order to get to heaven. I love the way this man... Whitfield, I love the way he answered somebody because he was famous for preaching on those words, you must be born again. And someone asked, Mr. Whitfield, why do you preach so often on you must be born again? Well, he said it's because you must be born again. You must be born again. It's absolutely essential. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? Do you have a moment in your life when you were born again, when you received everlasting life? I read to you tonight that the person who has the son has this life. So if you don't have him, you don't have it. Is there a moment when you receive Christ and we're born again? Because you must be born again. Moody understood our incessant rebelliousness. That in our hearts there is a stubborn refusal to bow in repentance or to acknowledge that God is God. From what I can understand from the Bible. The last thing that a sinner is willing to do is take his place before God as a helpless sinner. Would you be willing to do that tonight? To take your place before God as a helpless sinner. I'm speaking from personal experience because I did not want to do that. I did not want to do that. I fought against that. I had some excuses I used. Whenever, whenever that thought came into my mind that I should just go to God and take the place of being a helpless sinner, I, just, I, I, I tried to convince myself I think everything is going to be okay just, just, just the way I am. The last thing we will do because of the pride of our hearts is bow before God and admit that he is right and we are wrong. I hope you'll do that tonight. Because it's the Lord Jesus who told us if a person is not willing to do that, he will never be saved. Except you repent, you will perish. You know the third thing Moody knew? He knew who the one person was that could save sinners. He knew that it is the Lord Jesus alone that his sinless purity qualified him to save a sinner. That the Savior himself was sinless. That the sacrifice for sin had to be not only innocent, but had to be holy, had to be spotless. And he knew that the only human being, the only human being that was perfect was the Lord Jesus. Christ's perfect deity enabled him to save a race of sinners. His value, his infinite value to God lent limitless value to the work he accomplished. You would have to limit what God thinks of Christ to limit the value of what he did on the cross. And Moody understood that everybody he met, everybody he preached to, each one of those people, if he or she was going to be saved, it could only be through Christ. Moody understood that Christ's finished atonement equipped him, that he is able to save anybody, everybody, fully and permanently because of the perfection of his work. This is what he can do tonight. We know what Moody knew. We know that the Son of God has come and He's given us an understanding that we might know Him that is true. This is the true God in eternal life. And Moody knew that by His mighty resurrection, Christ was endorsed as the only Savior of sinners. That empty tomb is the proof God is giving you that the Lord Jesus accomplished the work of salvation. Now I've said all of that to bring you to this fourth thing. That Moody knew, and I am so glad that I know. Moody knew why the word of God could be trusted. Moody knew why God's word could be trusted. There is one reason why I know I will be in heaven when I die. I do not know I'm going to be in heaven because I... Love to preach the gospel, and, I, and I, I do love to preach the gospel. I'd rather pay you to let me preach than be paid not to. I love to preach the gospel. I don't know I'm going to be in heaven because I read God's word or because I pray. I don't read God's... I, I, I don't know that I'm saved because I, I have an interest, a little interest, in, in seeing other people saved. There's one reason why I know I will be in heaven when I die. One. And that is because this book tells me Jesus died for me on the cross. See, that has nothing to do with me or my feelings. It has nothing to do with something I did on July the 10th, 1966. What happened on that night is I found out what Jesus did for me. Moody knew God's word could be trusted, first of all, because God is love. You may think that's a strange thing to bring into this topic, but there it is. God is love. His word is given with the very best intentions for our eternal good. There is nothing about God's character or makeup that involves deceit or deception. Every time he speaks, it's coming from a God who loves men and women. So you can take what he says because he's seeking your good. Moody knew that you could trust the word of God because God is truth. Because God is truth. His word is dependable because it is pure and righteous. Or, in the simple language that the Bible uses to express this, God cannot lie. God cannot lie. The highest that I can ever reach is that I will not lie. God cannot lie. So when that night, when God told me that Christ died for me, could God be lying or tricking me or deceiving me? When God told me that that was enough to take me to heaven, could God be lying or fooling or deceiving me? When God said that the person who has Christ as his Savior and therefore whose sins have been paid for at Calvary, that person will never perish, I knew it was true because God cannot lie. See, imagine you're in a large company of people and somebody shouts fire. Escape through the front door and you're near the back door. Now, if you're an extremely intelligent person, you might say to yourself, oh yes, that's right. There, there are some propane tanks near the back door and he probably knows that the fire began there and is going to reach them very soon and so the safest thing is to go out the front door and after analysis see and after considering all of this reasoning and logic the person might make his way to the front door or if that was your dad telling you come this way the front door without all of that logic, without knowing anything about the tanks in the back, without knowing where the fire started, you might just in a second of time say, my dad knows best, I'm going that way. I think God knows best. I think God knows best. Apart altogether from my logic, my reasoning, my thinking, I think God knows best. And when God tells me salvation is only through Christ, I think God knows best and when god says that christ died for the ungodly i think god's telling the truth and when god says that the person who trusts christ will never perish i I don't need to sit down and go through all the logistics of that and figure out how that must be true and why that is true god can't lie so i'm just simply taking god at his word because god is love because god is truth and the third reason is because god is god his word's going to stand forever. So that if all the world said no, and God said yes, God's yes outweighs everybody's no. Let God be true and every man a liar. Because he's God. And his word is what's going to stand forever. I was, uh, I was at a Manchester, Connecticut conference some years ago. And there was a young woman there. I had spent um, a summer, actually, with her father, working on a, building a gospel hall and... Went back the next summer and we we had gospel meetings both of those times. I was just a teenager, so I was nothing more than practice, but I knew the family very well. And I saw her there. And I saw her listening to the gospel on Friday night with concentration. And I thought, I wonder if she's thinking about being saved. I was asked to preach the gospel on Saturday night. And uh, on Saturday night, I really couldn't see her in the audience. What she had done was she had moved from the second or third row and she was sitting in the back row. And here's why. On the Friday night when she was listening to the gospel, it was troubling her. And she thought to herself, no, I'm not going to do this again. I get troubled, I try to get saved, and nothing ever happens. I, I, I get miserable. No. I'm not. And tomorrow night, I'm just going to sit at the back and try not to listen. So that's where she was. What I did not know is that as she was sitting in the back fidgeting and doing everything she could to distract herself so that she wouldn't listen to me, her uncle Alan was sitting on those comfortable side seats that everybody tried to get in early enough to get in that old Masonic hall. He was sitting over there, and so he was looking straight across at her. And at one point she looked up and she looked over at him and she saw tears in his eyes because he's watching her. And she thought to herself, my cousin is more concerned about my soul than I am. She said, this is foolish. She said, tomorrow night I'm moving back up there and I'm going to listen. And the next night, she was on the road traveling back to Pennsylvania to stay with David and Melody and she wasn't at the gospel meeting. But I was starting meetings that Sunday night in a place called Hatboro. And uh, David and Melody got her over to the meeting she was listening with great concern. One day I was visiting with her, and I left her a tract to read, and I told her, there's nothing I can do for you. I said, I'll just stop pray with you, but you know you know the whole gospel. There's nothing more I can tell you. And I prayed with her, and I left. And as I was getting, as I was stepping out and getting to the car, I just happened to look up. At that point, they lived in a very tall, um, almost like a two-and-a-half-story house. And I, and I saw her looking out that window, the room where we had just been visiting. I waved to her, got in the car, drove off. That night at meeting, she was there. And on the way out, I said to her, well, Esther, did you did you get anything settled? And she said, I don't know. She said, I thought I got saved today, but I, I just, I'm not sure. I said, you know what? So why don't you talk to your cousin? I said, he's a wise man. Just uh, tell him, Tell him what you thought. Tell him what you think happened and see if he can help you. So the next day, he was away and he came back. It was actually Melody got her over. So he, he was back the next day and they're sitting in the kitchen and um, the refrigerator is here. And she's sitting there looking this way, see? And the Bible's open. And David's going over with her salvation, asking her um, what her thinking was. And all of a sudden she said, I'm saved. She said, it's settled. He said, what, what, what happened? She said, look. And she pointed to the refrigerator door. And on the refrigerator door there was a verse from the Bible. It is from the book of Hebrews. The last chapter, I believe. And it says, Jesus Christ, the same. Yesterday, today, Forever, she said, Yesterday, he told me in his word that he died for me. Today, it's still the same, and it's never going to change, it's going to be that way forever. So she said, I'm saved because that's what God says yesterday, today, and forever. Do you know why Moody knew he was saved? He knew it from the Bible. Do you know why I know I'll ever be in hell? I know it from the Bible. Do you know how people all around you here tonight are sure that they are going to be in heaven? They know it from God's word. Not how they feel, not what they think, but from the word of God. I hope tonight you will let go of all your own thinking and listen to what God says and trust the living God who is love, who is truth, who is God and cannot lie. Shall we pray? Father, in the Savior's precious name, we bow at the close of the meeting. We are so thankful for the certainty that comes with the gospel, that we know that we